Father, you are, you are good and gracious to allow um, Cottonwood, a group of men who would um, consistently meet in the mornings to wake up, um, to gather weekly in order to open your word and to be, um, to be read by it in order for us to know you better. And so God, I pray that this morning you would um, do a few things. One, that you would use me and not allow me to speak what I know or the little knowledge that I have, but instead, Lord, that you would speak directly to these men using your scripture. Um, and then second, Lord, I ask that these men would be in a position, that their hearts and souls would be in a position to receive your word. Um, Lord, that we would leave here a bit more sanctified, a bit more understanding of who we are in your kingdom, in your story. And so, God, would you bless us with that? Would you bless this food and the coffee to keep us awake, to give us energy, to give us life? Lord, we love you. We need you. We're thankful for you. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen and amen. So it didn't seem like John Mark had any sort of ebb and flow. It kind of seemed like he had a very specific thing in his mind as he was going through this. And he gave me the... Uh, the freedom to kind of choose my own, which was a hard task because I'll admit I don't uh, intimately, I guess is the word I'll use to make everyone uncomfortable off the back, I don't intimately know all of you, or really for the most part, most of you. And so I had to really pray through this and kind of think, man, what, what is, uh, if I looked at an Allen, Plano, McKinney um, uh, man in our church, a leader in the church, what would be something I think that the Lord would have for them? Um, and I found myself just silenced <laughs> with no answer because I'm not, in, I'm not in that demographic, and I did what I thought would, would be best, and I just kind of sought the scriptures. And I found something, I wanna warn you guys from the front, uh, I'm a younger guy with a lot of energy, and so if I come off extremely aggressive, uh, I apologize. It, in no mean, by no means am I trying to offend anyone, I'm just trying to read the word and make sure that we're all in a line with God's word. Um, I say that on Thursday nights when I teach the young adults and the college students, because um, they tend to be, uh, part of a culture that doesn't like to be told they're wrong. But then I very quickly found out, um, I think that's all of us, right? I think, I think that's everyone. No, I mean, uh, I haven't been married that long, but I can tell you the biggest fight my wife and I have is when she's telling me I'm doing something wrong. Um, that's very quick to trigger some things in me. And so um, this morning, I don't want to be on the receiving end of that. I want y'all to know everything I'm reading and teaching, I'm hoping is from the Lord, like I asked in my prayer, and I'm hoping that he could speak to y'all directly. But with that being said, uh, this morning, uh, we are going to look at throwing down the gauntlet of self. Um, and, and that can be really tricky and dangerous because uh, self has a lot of words that it's attached to. Um, that, that is where I'm wanting to go. So whether that's self-righteousness or maybe self-worship or um, maybe even a larger than self-image. Maybe uh, you think you are more important than what you actually are in God's scope of things. Um, and so tonight, uh, or this morning, I just want to look at that. Um, I want to run through the scriptures, run through some things, um, and lay some truths before us. So if you have your Bibles, if you would open up to Revelation 3. Um, I told you all, I'm coming in with a lot of energy here, so we're going straight to Revelation. Um, for those who aren't familiar with Revelation, um, especially here in the beginning, obviously I, I'm not going to sit here and exegetically go through the entire thing, because we'd be here for about a year and a half if I tried doing that. But in the first uh, few chapters, what we see is Jesus um, is speaking to John in a revelation. And during that revelation, he gives John a commission or a word for the seven churches that are in Asia Minor at the time, in, in current day Turkey. Um, and each one of these churches were massive churches. They were well-known churches. Um, and the thing I want to take out of this in um, Revelation 3 is to the church of Sardis. Um, and essentially what I want to do is I, I don't want to pretend Cottonwood is the church of Sardis because um, I don't think that's accurate. But I want to pretend that each one of us individually are potentially a part of the church of Sardis. 
Um, and you'll understand here in a minute why I say that. Would anyone like to read this? Does John Mark Lee, y'all read this, he usually read it. What's his yeah. like? He just usually reads it? Okay. Revelation 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Just real quick, the angel of the church is believed to be the pastor or uh, the elders of the church that Jesus is speaking to, and then he's giving himself the authority, seven spirits um, and seven stars. That's a signature if you go back to Isaiah um, from the root of Jesse. It's, he's saying, I'm Jesus. Tell the elder of the church that Jesus has a word for him. That's what that introduction means. Continue on. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you... Sorry. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, um, Jesus does this to all the churches. Sardis isn't the only bad guy church. Jesus addresses the things he likes about the church, and then, like a good, loving God, tells them the areas that they need correction. Um, I don't know about you guys, but here at Cottonwood, we have job evaluations, and even when I worked in corporate before I came to the church, we had job evaluations. And as much as we would all like to go into a job evaluation and only hear the things that we've improved on, like a good boss, like someone who's a good leader, they would naturally tell you the areas that you need to um, increase productivity or naturally grow in. And here we see Jesus doing that for us. Now his commission to us is, is a harsh one. What he's saying is your works, the things we are doing make us look alive, but on the inside our spirituality, our idea of who God is, is dead. Maybe, uh, maybe for a moment in time our faith is dead. Um, now I do want to make this a little bit more uh, of a discussion than what maybe John Mark them do. I want to ask uh, you gentlemen, and again, I think we need honesty if we're going to talk about this, and I think that's the hardest part of our faith, but what does it look like to have works that looks alive but have a soul or a, flat or a spirit that is dead? What, what do you all assume that to mean? I don't have kids. I'm assuming most of you all do. When, when kids, what I've, at least from my experience as being a kid, when you try and do the right thing yet still do the wrong thing, um, it, it doesn't justify still doing the wrong thing, right? Like if I go to a police officer and I tell him I was speeding and I had a really good justification, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't negate the fact that I was breaking the law, does it? If your son or your daughter said, well, hey, listen, I have a reason why I did the very thing you told me not to do. They were trying to do the right thing, but they weren't just getting out to it, right? And in a moment, we're going to tackle that. We're going to jump back to Isaiah. I'm not trying to make a theological statement here. I want to make that clear. But I love the Old Testament because I can't help but see myself as the people of Israel, again, not a theological statement, just a personal relationship between me and the Lord, I see myself doing the very things they do. In Isaiah, we're going to look at that. I mean, we're trying to do the right thing. We're, God's saying one thing and we're doing it, yet he's still then coming to us in Revelation. He's going, hey, you look alive, but you're dead, right? You're dead. And so um, this is what I want to do. I, I want to ask the opposite question of that. So these two gentlemen gave us what it looks like um, to have a faith that looks alive, but Jesus would look at us on judgment day and he'd go, you're dead. You don't know me. You're not acting in the way I've called you. 
What is the reverse of that? What does a faith that is alive to you gentlemen look like? What do you think a lively faith, um, not a dead one, looks like? To let you guys know a little bit about me before we, before we jump around in the scriptures and play a little bit of game here, um, I didn't grow up in the church. Uh, I said this last time I was here, for those who remembered, my mom and dad are not believers to this day. However, my mom and dad are two of the hardest working people I know, two of the most generous people I know, two of the most loving people I know. Um, I think that they think they look alive um, in the sight of a God, if there was one in their belief, but truly my parents have souls that are dead. Um, I grew up in the church, or I did not grow up in the church, so when I joined the church, what I noticed very quickly was that I had something, and this is not a brag, this is me trying to explain my relationship with the Lord. I had this type of affection or desire to please God that I did not see in a lot of my peers. Um, and the reason for that was because when I got saved, my understanding was that there was this grace aspect that God was giving me, and that caused in my heart a genuine celebration of joy, a genuine celebration of um, neediness of Him, because I noticed, again, like we're going to look at in a minute, every time I was left to my own devices, even after I was a believer, I found my flesh running to sin, and it was truly this confusing battle for years and years and years in my, er in my earlier walk of my faith, but I would look at my peers, and they were outwardly doing things that were correct, but inward didn't have hearts that worshiped the Lord whatsoever. Um, one of the main things I've seen, um, and this is where I want to jump to next, is in James. Or one of the things I asked myself a lot when I just became a believer was, how do I know if I have Christ genuinely? Because I see a lot of people who say they have Christ, and I see a lot of people walking around um, saying that they believe that they're saved by faith. Um, I, I see this, but... Surely there's like uh, some way to tell. Um, and, I, and I heard a sermon when I was about 21 years old um, by a gentleman who said, you can tell what a tree is by its fruit. That's how you tell. You walk up to an apple tree and it produces apples. And when an apple tree stops producing apples, then it's no longer an apple tree that's working. It's probably a dying apple tree. Now, if we go back to Revelation, if I don't want you to, I want you to hear James 3, you'll notice he says, strengthen that which is dying. He's not, Jesus isn't saying some of you are dead. He's saying there is a portion that's dead, but there's some of you that are busy dying. And I think uh, he actually says this to the church of Ephesus. He says, hey, don't forget your first love. Like that passion, like maybe you think of your, the bride of your youth. Maybe you think of the love and passion and affection you had at one point for her. You at one point had that for Jesus. And Jesus is saying, hey, where was, when you found out that you were no longer destined for hell, but you found out I have through grace and love saved you, where did that passion go? That, that, this love, this, this love that overflows from the God who created everything that we know, see, hear, smell, and touch. Where is the affection that now you get to know him and worship him and talk to him? And, and more than that, you're redeemed by him and he bought you a new life. Where was the actual outward flow of that? And if you have it, what does it look like? What does the tree of faith look like? And James 3.13, um, James is one of my favorite um, authors of the New Testament um, because of how aggressive he is with painting this. I think you can't debate. I think you can't self-justify uh, as we're throwing the gauntlet down on self. You can't self-justify when you hear this. You're either doing one of these two things, and uh, it's up to you to figure out as I read through this. So here's James' word from James 3, verse 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That let him show is an imperative command in the Greek. What it means is, don't tell me what you think about yourself. 
Let your life show me what it means. Let, my, let your life show you which of these two wisdoms, which these two uh, Christ-likeness you walk in. Verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For whatever jealousy and selfish ambition, wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So James is going to say, let me ask you this. Wisdom, if you go to Colossians, you'll see all the treasures and knowledge of wisdom are found in Christ. When the New Testament says, do you have wisdom? Do you have knowledge? Do you walk in wisdom and knowledge? It's asking if you're walking in the spirit or in the flesh. Here he's saying, if you walk in the flesh, you will be a bitter person, a jealous person who's only after himself. Everything you do has to have an end goal of turning back and benefiting you. And then when that becomes your lifestyle, when that becomes the fruit that your life bears, all of a sudden you will be surrounded by disorder and every sorts of vile practice. So the thing I want to ask you, gentlemen, is where's your life? If you, not, not where do you think, not what do you self-proclaim, not what do, where do you self-justify, not what does your self-righteousness say, but if you had to go ask the people who knew you the dearest, maybe your wife for my case, if you were to ask her, hey, is Leon a selfish person a lot of the time? If you were to ask my coworkers, is Leon a selfish person? person? Does he operate in jealousy? Does he always think about other people? Is he always talking about other people? Is he always noticing how other people are doing well and then speaking ill of it? Or maybe you don't only have the symptoms of these. Maybe, maybe this is a deep-rooted issue in your heart. Maybe selfish ambition and jealousy aren't the things you're showing. Maybe they're vile practices that, again, you're not walking outward in. Maybe you're doing them in the quiet of your house. Maybe you're doing them when your wife goes to sleep. Maybe you're thinking about them when you're at the office. Maybe it's the way you speak about your coworkers. What is the fruit of your life showing? Because if this is the trajectory that you're on, it seems like in Revelations, Jesus made it very clear, you're busy walking towards death again. You've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten that it's about me. You forgot that this world, everything you have, is turned around to worship me, not yourself. Let's go on and see what alive looks like, if you're alive. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above, this is the gospel, this is those who walk in the spirit of Jesus Christ, the life that he has bought them and resurrected and given to them. This is what happens when you walk in this. First, you're pure, you're peaceable, you're gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This word gentle is one that hits near and dear to my heart because when my wife and I were engaged, this is the one word not referencing the scriptures, just as a person that she said I was not. I'll never forget, we were long distance and I was on the phone with her and we were, uh, we were arguing about something silly on the wedding day and she said, I wish you would be more gentle. You're just not a very gentle person. And she said, I wish you would be open to understanding a little bit more. I wish you wouldn't just cut me off and say it's your way or the highway. And at that point, again, this scripture wasn't near and dear to my heart at that moment. And so I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm super gentle. You're just crazy. And then a couple months later, the Lord put this passage on my heart. And he said, hey, if you're walking in the life I've bought you, you're going to be gentle. You're going to be full of mercy. 
That means when people step against you, when people speak ill of you, that means when you don't get the job you wanted to get, that means when you don't get the thing that you wanted to get, you're open to mercy. You're actually overflowing with mercy. Why? Because you have been given mercy by the great king. You're impartial and sincere. You're not the type of person that says, yeah, sure, do whatever you want, I don't care. No, 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 you're sincere, you, you care, you're actually in it. You, you, it's not about self, it's all of a sudden about other people. When you're walking in the fruit that Christ has afforded you, no longer are your eyes on yourself, but they're on everyone else. To be gentle, to be open to reason, to be sincere, to be filled with mercy, to be impartial, your eyes can't be on yourself. Actually, if your eyes are on yourself and you're always getting angry because people aren't pleasing you, maybe your wife or your co-workers, that definition fits more closely to selfish ambition, does it not? It seems like James, the brother of Jesus, is telling us to throw down the gauntlet of self, and he's saying, why don't you take your eyes off of yourself and refocus them on the true king? It's, and again, it's not about works, and I'm about to prove that in a moment, in a minute, because I know every one of you in here, if you're like me or like my father, and you're just a work-driven man, which I know you are because you're here at 6 a.m., and I know it's not because of the donut, donuts, it's because you're a hard worker. So I know I can sit up here and say, hey, gentlemen, we need to be more merciful. Hey, gentlemen, we need to be more loving to our wives and to our families. We need to be more open to reason, filled with mercy and love and gentleness. And I know 70% of you, I won't say 100 because that's a lie, 70% of you will go home this week and you'll achieve that goal. Maybe you buy flowers for your wife tonight and you're like, I'm going to be gentle, I'm going to be sweet, I'm going to be filled with mercy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be loving. But how long does that last until your self-ambition falls short? Right? How many times have you told yourself, I'm not going to partake in this sin, I'm not going to get angry anymore, I don't have to because Christ has given me that, and then the fuel runs out and the flame simmers. It seems like we have this bent to keep our eyes on ourselves that cuts down the flame of what Christ has bought us in his life. And in Revelation, he's pleading with us. He's going, hey, one day I'm coming like a thief in the night. I know you don't believe it. I know every morning you don't wake up and go, hey, Jesus is coming back today, but I'm going to come like a thief in the night. And the day that I come, does you don't want it to be the day that you're selfishly living for yourself. You want it to be the day that you're alive. And then if you're not, it's not, this is not a hell at fire and brimstone message. He's saying, strengthen yourself. Stand up and leave here and strengthen yourself in the areas that you're dying in. Because if you're selfish, you're dying. You're dying in sin and by yourself because you're the only thing that mattered. Now here's my follow-up question to that. My follow-up question to that is, well, well, Leon, how do I then... How do I then pursue this type of lifestyle? Because I've tried. I've tried being disciplined. I've tried being in the Word daily. I've tried prayer. I've tried community. I've tried all these things that John Mark and the church has thrown out and the scriptures have thrown out. What's next? Well, I'm going to take you to the Bible and I'm going to let God answer that question for us. If you want to open up to Isaiah 58. It's one of my favorite passages. Unfortunately, one of the, le the lesser-known passages of Scripture. Isaiah 58. Now, I'm not going to read through all of it. I encourage you guys to read through all of it at some point this week. But I'm going to sum it up for you about what's going on historically and in context so that you can understand. Essentially, um, the whole book of Isaiah is God telling Israel that he's about to murder all of them because all they do is choose sin. And he's going, hey, I, I'm, 
I'm, I'm holy, I'm perfect, you're sinful, unless you get your act together, I'm going to have to kill all of you because this is not worthy of my presence. And so he tells Isaiah to be his mouthpiece. And Isaiah goes and tells Israel, and Israel continues to choose sin, yet they know they're the chosen nation, just like a lot of us in here might know that we're Christian, so occasionally they do the right thing. Occasionally they show up and follow the law, and occasionally when Isaiah tells them to do something, they do it. And in this case, following chapter 58, that's one of those circumstances. God tells them to fast and to praise and worship his name. And so you know what Israel does? Like the good little Christian boy who went to VBS and knows his Bible, they said, okay, I'm going to do that. And so they praise and they worship and they fast. But then about a couple days into it, I assume, God meets up with Isaiah and he says, hey, Isaiah, can you tell them to stop? I hate everything they're doing. Why are they doing that? And Isaiah, in a very confused manner, goes, why are they fasting and worshiping and praising? Because you told them to. He goes, no, no, I hate everything they're doing. If you read Isaiah 58, God goes, that's not what I asked them to do. I asked them to praise and worship me and fast to get, no, fast to, get to know me, to love me, to grow in their affections for who I am and what I've done for them, how I've brought them out of slavery and into freedom and given them a name and I've given them a kingdom. And now all of a sudden they've turned it on themselves and they've done whatever they want with it. God goes, I, I hate their worship and I hate their fast. Their silly works are nothing to me because they've lost the heart behind why they're doing it. This is profound to me. There's, there's a moment in time where God tells us to do church things, tells us to do religious things, and we can do them and God can look at them and go, that's not what I wanted. It sounds like when my wife and I argue. So sometimes she tells me to do something and I do it, but it's not the way she wanted me to do it. It seems like God has a little bit of that in him as well here. No, no, he wanted me to actually want to do those things. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, it's not that my wife wants me to do the dishes. She wants me to want to do the dishes. And usually my excuse is, well, I don't want to do the dishes. Well, with God, that argument doesn't work. When God says, hey, I want you to fast so that you can fall more in love with me and see your genuine need for me, and you fast, and all of a sudden it becomes about yourself. Like, like let me tell you what, I, what Isaiah says that they were doing. They were fasting. And then in their fasting, they're supposed to be taking care of the poor. They're supposed to be giving to the naked and the poor and the, the homeless. And they're supposed to be serving during their fast and relying on the strength of the Lord. And instead, what they did is they became hangry. I don't know if y'all are familiar with this word. Um, I use it quite frequently. It's when you become so hungry that you become agitated with everything around you. Um, and, and that's what happened. They, they became so selfish and they so self-centered during their fast because they were hungry, but they knew they had to keep not or abstaining from food because God asked them to. But they didn't like what they were doing. They didn't want to keep doing it. They were doing it because they thought if they did it, God would bless them. You see, in Jewish culture, when God blesses you, you make a lot of money. Your crop grows that year. Your finances are well. Your health is well. Now, I said earlier I love the Old Testament because I think it reflects a lot of us today. I don't know about y'all, but I see that a lot in our church, don't we? I see men and women showing up maybe once or twice every other month or so, which, again, I know it's a religious activity, and I'm not saying there's anything behind it. I don't think there's a gold star check system in heaven on how many church services we missed, but it seems like God wants us to be at the church because he wants us to meet him every time we come here. He wants us to encounter him every time we come here. How many Sundays have you come to a church service and not even remotely met with the Lord in any sort of actual, tangible way? 
How many times has it been, hey, kids, wife, get in the car, we got to do this? It doesn't seem to me like there's much of a difference between what they were doing with their fast and what the Lord's called us to do in this current day and age, is there? And I think when Jesus looks at that in Revelations, he goes, hey, one of these is alive, one of these is dead. Being alive looks like meekness, gentleness, overflowing with mercy. It looks like telling your coworker about the Lord Jesus because there's a day he's coming like a thief in the night. And there's only one thing that's important after Jesus returns, and that's his kingdom. It looks like, to me, we've made self-worship in the church. Like you going to church has accidentally made you feel better about your sin because now you think you're forgiven, yet you haven't met with the forgiver. But again, you, you checked it off. You feel better, don't you? Like, this is my confession, y'all. I feel better when I come to church. I do, intrinsically. I don't know why. I can come and listen to John Mark teach, and I can sit in a worship service, and I can leave and not have done any business with the Lord, genuinely, like actual genuine business with the Lord, like repentance, genuine prayer. I could have done none of that and gone and somehow have convinced myself that me and my sin is okay where it is. Let me put it this way and maybe a more relevant understanding. Earlier I asked how many of y'all like college basketball, and I did not get an overwhelming amount of yeses, which is okay. I'll use that still as my example. Um, I played basketball at AM. So uh, I was a walk-on my junior year because uh, I won't say the name of the student, but one of the students was ridiculously stupid and got himself kicked off right when the season started. And they had an open roster spot, needed to fill a 15-man roster spot. It was too late for recruitment from high school, and it was too late to recruit a JUCO player up because their season had already started, and the process would have taken too long. So in 2012, A&M started opening up open tryouts of what they're called, and I believe they still go to this day because of the tradition that A&M started. If you do anything twice, you do it for eternity. Anyways, and so they did it, um, praise the Lord, and uh, I guess I was like the bottom of the barrel that was left over. I was the captain of, our, um, of one of our teams that was not affiliate with NCAA whatsoever, but I was the captain, and so they said, hey, we need a, we need a guard, whatever, I guess we'll take you. Just hurry up, come join us. And so I did, and it was awesome. And I loved NCAA, and I'll tell you what, there's one thing I learned um, about being a college athlete, and that's that some people are freakishly obsessed with their sport, with their team. And I am too, like I love the Aggies. I would potentially bleed for the Aggies. That might be far, but I don't know. Uh, during football season, it's different. There's like something takes, something gets a hold of me. But here's my point. Maybe you're not a college football fan. Maybe you're a football fan, or maybe you're a golf fan, or maybe you're a, I don't know, tennis fan. I don't know where else all of you are. But let me ask you this. Have you ever celebrated a team's victory? Like, like I can tell y'all are men in here, and so a lot of y'all are like, man, I don't display my emotions on my sleeve. But I want, I want you to put yourself in that spot. The time that you maybe accidentally cheered, right? Like accidentally you were like, yes, touchdown. And then everyone looked, and immediately you were back to your you know, arms right here in your little comfort zone. Or, or how about this? Has your team, has something you've ever been deeply invested in lost? Like when I worked at corporate, I worked at a marketing um, firm, and literally this lady was the biggest Duke fan I've ever seen in my entire life. She didn't even go to Duke, so I don't understand it. First off, she was a lady who loved the men's basketball team, and Duke lost, uh, what is this, four years ago, five years ago, pretty early. And this lady, for four days, I'm not kidding you, mourned 
Like when I say mourn, I thought there was a death in her family. But she wore the same Duke jersey for four days in a row. It was the most obscene thing I've ever seen in my entire life. But I've also seen the opposite of that. When Duke did well, that lady would not shut up. She accidentally sent a send all or reply all email. I don't know if you guys work at a big corporate company, but when the VP sends out an email, you don't push reply all in the company I worked for, especially when you're a lower level associate, which she was, and she did. Did y'all see that Duke game? Enter, send, loser, you should not have done that. But let me, let me ask y'all, you, maybe you're not that obsessed, but have you ever been somewhere on that spectrum? whether it be an elation or some sort of disappointment with your team. Maybe it was back when Tony Romo played. Maybe there were a few times that you were like, what in the world is this man doing? But maybe every now and then he wouldn't get sacked and he would do like 13 loops and somehow make the pass to Des Bryant and you'd lose your mind. Okay, let me get to my point. I think that when God created the universe, he gave you those emotions so that they would turn around and worship him. I think that the Lord's given you a heart that aches when something's lost in front of you so that when you betray the God who saved you with sin, you would feel that mourning over your sin, that you would be so downcast on your soul because you keep choosing other things over the Lord that you would be in a fog for days. Like I, I read the Psalms and I wonder sometimes how much David loved the Lord because he said there's days where he lost sleep because of his sin. Lord, where are you? Day and night, my tears are my food. I want to ask you, men, that sounds like a man who's alive after Christ's heart. That sounds like a man who is willing to submit his life to the Lord and, and operate in gentleness and freedom. I want to ask you, where are you on that scale? Because if you find yourself slipping into the more, man, I seem kind of crusty and dead, man, I would ask you, what's holding you back? Is it yourself? Is it I'm worried about the way people are going to look at me and think about me and talk about me if all of a sudden I become this lunatic for Jesus? Have you ever heard of a man named Paul? What about John the Baptist? These were both lunatics. But I'll tell you what, if they didn't do the work they did, then like our, like our man said over there, there would be people to this day who did not know who the Lord was. If they didn't take their cross and bear the weight of looking like a fool because the Lord created them to operate in that way and the world is ridiculous and doesn't understand who the king of it actually is, I would tell you that's, that's a game I'm not willing to play with. When I got saved my senior year of high school, which I know doesn't mean a lot to us in here because most of us probably don't hang out with our high school friends. Don't worry, I don't either. But I, I can promise you when I was a senior in high school, I lost all my friends when I became a believer. And it was the most difficult thing I've ever gone through in my entire life. My friends that I used to, funny enough, smoke weed with and used to go and party with and drink with, all of a sudden I had to confess to these men that I loved a guy named Jesus Christ because he bought my soul. And all of a sudden, they thought I was partaking in some sort of witchcraft, even though all of them grew up in the Bible Belt and knew the gospel. That was a type of gospel that they didn't know. But I'd been made alive in Christ. I couldn't deny that. I couldn't walk in death. I knew what that was. I knew that sin was death. And, and I'm, not as, I'm not full of life like I once was, but I read the scripture, and I beg the Lord that he would make me alive like that again. Because here's the reality, the people you're scared of, maybe your coworkers, maybe some of your family, in 500, 600, 8,000 years from now, when it's only you and the Lord left, you're not going to remember those people. 
right? Just like I don't remember my high school friends. It was a total win. I'm so thankful that the Lord gave me the courage and the hope in him to tell those people, hey, I love Jesus, man. He gives me life. You know why? Because those people don't matter to me. Not, not in a rude way, not like, man, I'm better than them, but in a way where it's like, man, if they're going to judge me for taking up my cross, I'm okay with that because I still gain Jesus. So maybe, maybe you're thinking, well, I work with these people. It's a little bit different. In a thousand years, I bet it's not. And I bet, I bet in a thousand years, the people you're afraid of being openly in love with Jesus about, the people who you're afraid to show that side of your soul, I bet in a thousand years, they're just as distanced from my high school friends right now. But now here's the question. Do you actually have faith that that's a reality that you'll walk in one day? Because the thing is, is that if you flip over one chapter after that, 59, God says, hey, it's not, it's not Satan who's pushing you away from me. This is what he says in 50, Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation from me between you and your God, and your sin has hidden his face from you. Listen, gentlemen, it's super easy for you to leave here and be like, hey, uh, Leon, you don't understand the circumstance I'm in. There's, man, Satan is attacking me right now, which may be true, which may be true, but I bet you the thing that's pushing you towards death and not life is you and your sin. It's not other people. It's not your wife. It's not your coworkers. It's not that they're scary. It's not your family. It's not your finances. It's not, it's not any of this. It's, it's you. You're the thing who's choosing death over life. No one can make that choice for you. So when I, when I go back to Revelation 3 and I read this, at first it can seem harsh and it can seem aggressive, just like any sort of job, um, just any sort of job where they're telling you what you're doing right and wrong. But I want to read it for us again, and I want to I sit under that weight. Jesus looks at you, gentlemen. He knows every deed, every action that you do, whether it's open out in public or whether it's in the secret of your bedroom. He knows every action. Listen, Jesus in Matthew 5 tried to make a point. It's even bigger than that. It's not even really your actions. It's your heart. He, he says, hey, a man, I, that you've heard it say that a, a man who cheats on his wife is a sinner. He says, I think if you even lust in your heart, you're a sinner. You heard it say, don't murder. I'm telling you, if you're even a drop of anger, if you're an angry type of person, I say you're already a murderer. Jesus isn't after your actions. He's after your heart. He knows what you're doing. He knows the direction of your heart. He's not worried about the things you're doing. He wants your heart. He wants you to worship him because everything he's given you is for him. It's for you to turn that around in praise and worship for who he is. If you're a believer in Christ in here, this is like my favorite thing in the world, those donuts in there aren't supposed to be giving you life. Like, don't get me wrong, I love donuts, I love steak, I love food, I love it. And I think a non-believer can come in and he can eat a steak and he can eat donuts and he can say, oh, this is so good. And he can drink a cup of coffee and he can say, oh, this wakes me up. But for the believer, Jesus says, I've given you those things so that you can experience that. And then that would roll over into your life to worship me. You could say, God, thank you for this coffee that I could have energy this morning to worship and praise you. Thank you for this food. Thank you for how good it tastes. That's a grace and mercy that you didn't have to give me, but you did. Thank you for it. That's what an alive person looks like. Jesus says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, 
but you're dead. Wake up, gentlemen. Wake up and strengthen what remains in what is about to die. Strengthen those deep corners of your soul. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You may be doing the right thing, gentlemen. You may be coming to church. You may have a perfect attendance. You may, be, you may even be buying your wife flowers and agreeing with her and not arguing. And you may even act gentle. And you may even act reasonable and open to reason and all these good things. But I want to I push it even a step further as we end this lesson today. Where's your heart at? What is your heart worship? And I want to take James' word. I want to take an a compar- or imperative command. I don't want to ask what do you think you're good at. We're dying to self. The goal is not to see what we think we're good at. It's to actually challenge ourselves. Where's your heart worship? Is it you? Is everything you do about you? Not even everything. Maybe you're like, man, I'm a, I'm a pretty good guy. Is the majority of your life about you? Because I'm, I'm, I'm willing and bet, betting to say that there comes a day where you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he goes, hey, man, I've given you so much. Why did you turn it around and worship yourself with it? And on that day, it's not going to sound like a good idea, is it? When you're standing before the Holy of Holies on his throne and he's going, hey, I've loved you and been gracious to you. I've given you an amazing wife, an amazing family. And, and yeah, there were some ups and downs, but you took everything I gave you and worshiped yourself with it. How are you any different from Israel in chapter 58? I ask you to fast, I ask you to worship, but you even do that to make yourself feel better. You don't do it to worship and praise my name and my glory and my honor. And you want to come into the kingdom, into heaven, where that's eternity? You have zero desire for it now. You're dying. Why would, I, why, why would you want an eternity of worshiping the King Jesus if you don't even want any of it right now? So, man, I think Jesus warns us with this because he wants to shake us up. He wants to say, hey, you who are dead in here, and not dead outwardly because your actions look alive. I'm talking about your heart. You who are dead, come alive. This is my last scripture for y'all, Luke 9, 23 through 27. Luke 9. This is Jesus speaking. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life, listen, gentlemen, whoever saves his life, he loses it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he saves it. For what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What a great mercy and grace Jesus Christ has given us that we, we would not taste death because he's already tasted it for us. And would that cause us men to go out today and the rest of this week and worship his glorious, beautiful, precious name with the fact that you don't have to stand before the king of judgment because God, through his grace and mercy, has said, no, no, this one's mine. Would that create a heart that worships 
more than any Cowboys game, more than any victory of some silly sport, more than any birthday party, more than any sort of nonsense that this world has to offer, but in a certain way that our God has created the universe, created you to worship him. Let me pray for us. God, I love that you call your word a sword, a sword that's sharper than anything that we have because what it does is it cuts through to us. It cuts deeper than bone and marrow, Lord. It cuts down to our souls and you, through your Holy Spirit, speaks to us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would have spoken to some of these men this morning that you would um, convict of sin, which is one of the beautiful gifts of your spirit, that you would convict us of sin, but we wouldn't just stay there. We wouldn't just stay in that sin and feel comfortable and safe, but that your word would pressure us in a way that would cause us to step out and walk in faith, to con maybe confess some sin. Maybe there's some things that men in here need to confess to find freedom in. Maybe some of us in here need to take your gospel more seriously, God. Maybe some of us need to take up our cross daily and die to ourselves. Lord, maybe we've been worshiping our own kingdom, our own selves for far too long. Lord, would you forgive us for that? Lord, would you forgive us for our flesh and the way our flesh continually tends to bend back towards sin, the very sin that we stand before you and say we want to give to you. We find ourselves running after again and again and again, yet you still graciously love us and call us back. Would you do that this morning? Would you allow your spirit to carry this message throughout our week? Would we continue to stay near to your spirit? Lord, when you return, I pray that every man in this room would be found precious, clothed in white garments, entering into your kingdom, worshiping you for eternity. But would that worship start here today? God, thank you for grace. Thank you for the life that you've bought us. I pray that we would walk in it faithfully in order for you to be glorified. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it.